right. So, as I said, we have a lot to cover. Um, if you read ahead um, in this uh, chapter, chapter 12, we're going to be actually going today from verse 7 all the way to verse number 24, and that's a rarity for us. That's crazy. But when you read it, you will understand why we're going to cover such a large swath. But before getting there, I want to get you guys up to speed with where we were um, the week before. We were in Joshua chapter, chapter Joshua chapter number 12, verses 1 through 6, and that message was called The Value of Trials. And what we did there was we recounted what had taken place actually leading up to the Israelites' entry into the Promised Land. They were under the leadership of Moses. And what Moses had done was bring them right to the border of the Promised Land. And what we saw was they faced some challenges when they reached that border. There was, um, in that text that we saw, there was not a lot of information, but we found a lot of supporting verses from the book of Numbers and the book of Deuteronomy that showed us and fleshed out the story for us. And what we found out and what God revealed to us was, first of all, with this group of Israelites, this younger generation, their faith had to be tested. Their faith had to be tested. And it was through dealing with the opposition of the hostility that they met at the borders of Canaan that God took this inexperienced Israelite group and began to give them a foundation of faith, a foundation where they started to learn how to trust God and His ability to deliver the victory. For you see, God knew that if their faith wasn't developed, if their faith wasn't tested, when they faced the more challenging enemies that they would face in Canaan, they would have a hard time succeeding. So what we saw is this preparatory uh, conflict that was getting them prepared to succeed. And as we looked at this, we discussed the principle in regard to our own faith, the testing of our faith. And we found ourselves in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And we took from that, it says this, my brethren, count it all joy. When he says count all joy, he says being thankful. He He says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Okay? Diverse temptations. These are things that we're drawn to do the wrong thing. We're tempted away from doing the right thing. Then he says in verse 3, Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. That patience, what it's talking about is our ability to trust God in the midst of adversity. Are we going to trust the Lord? And then verse 4 says this, But let patience right, have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire wanting nothing. So God says, what's happening is what James is sharing with us is the fact that, listen, adversity matures us. Adversity strengthens us. If someone's never dealt with any adversity, it's very difficult when it comes for the first time. If something's massive, man, they, they fall apart. So what it's important to do is have those little steps. It's like with our children. You know, some people are like, I'm not going to have any pets. I'm not going to have any pets because I don't want my kids to have to deal with death. Well, death is a part of life, right? And it's a lot better to get used to Fifi passing away then maybe mom or dad or uncle or aunt or grandma or granddad. It's preparatory. Adversity is a part of life. And so what's happening is we see this adversity for us, the challenging our faith, the testing of our faith is important. It's, it's absolutely uh, essential for us as we move forward. Then we went specifically, uh, as we got out of that verse 1 last time, to the specific obstacles that they faced. And what we did is we actually saw they were named for us. And when they faced the first obstacle, Uh, The Israelites were full of faith, and they stood their ground when opposed, and they were defying and defeating a powerful king by the name of Sahon. I'm assuming that's how you say his name. That's how we're going to say it, okay? And what would happen is he, when they came, they said, hey, we want to come through your land peacefully. We just want to come through. We promise we won't touch anything. He's like, no, no, no. Oh, we're coming against you. So he made a decision that he was going to come against Israel, and that was a bad decision because God made sure that he was utterly, utterly destroyed. He and his kingdom were completely destroyed, and this set the stage 
for the Israelites. This is their first victory. They saw God come in. He came against them. God came in. He rescued them from it. He brought victory. But what God was doing was prepping them for the next enemy they would face. It was a king named Og. Now, this is, again, this is before they get to the promised land. This is preparatory, right? And when they came to Og, Og, turned out, was a literal king or a literal giant. The Bible says his bed was 13 and a half feet tall. I don't know how big you are to be in a 13 and a half foot tall, but that's a big bed. Unless he was just like sleeping in the very center. No. <laughs> the Bible says he's a remnant of the giant. So he's a huge dude. Right? And he's got this massively powerful kingdom. The Bible tells they had 60 fortified cities. And what we saw was they literally held and remained courageous when they were outmatched. So they defeated Sahon. Then they came in and they defeated Og. And what this did was prepare them. Because recognize the first big thing they're going to deal with when they get into the promised land is Jericho. The great walled city of Jericho that was designed to intimidate any and all men. And their faith was going to be strong enough when they get there that guess what? The walls of Jericho will come crashing down. So though even though they were successful and they had some, some good things under their belt, unfortunately there was still an issue that they had and they struggled to trust God. And we saw this was in the willingness of some of the Israelites. Now there was uh, Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh. And what happened when they got there and after they defeated Sahon and Og, they looked around and they said, boy, this land looks awesome. This looks really sweet, man. Look at the, the lake over there. Got some mountains over there. I could put a little hot tub over there. I'm going to put my tent over there. Man, this is going to be great. This is perfect. And they just said, you know what? What we'll do, we'll settle for the, for the wilderness. We don't even want to go into the promised land. We like it here. And what we saw was the fact they were willing to fulfill what they wanted as opposed to what God wanted for them. Because remember, God promised them Canaan. This is outside of Canaan. So what happens is they fulfill their fleshly desires. And what's the worst thing is Moses falls prey to it. Because Moses goes, look, if that's what you guys want, then I guess it's okay. Moses knew what was supposed to do. Moses knew where Canaan was, and yet he made, he made a conscious choice to fulfill their desires. And what we saw in that was a picture of ourselves. It was we struggle with missing out on what God has for us so many times because we're willing to settle. We're willing to pick what we want. We're willing to fulfill the desires of our flesh. And Romans 13, 14 says this, But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. If we could say this in terminology for us to understand for our message today, get into the promised land. For us, our spiritual promised land is a place of fellowship with God. It's a place where we walk with the Lord. Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh. Listen, don't concede. Don't give in to your desires. Fulfill what I have for you to fulfill the lust thereof. Moses and two and a half of the tribe, two and a half of those tribes chose their flesh. And not by coincidence, neither Moses nor any of them were ever able to experience what God had for them in the promised land. But there were nine and a half tribes and a new leader. And guess what? They took things a different route. They decided, you know what? We're going to follow the Lord. And what we're going to do today is we're going to follow their story. We're going to look at their story, which is a story of victory. We're going to see Joshua faithfully follow God, delivering his brethren from the wilderness and into the land that the Lord had prepared for them, moving from simply a proposition and a hope for them to actually becoming a possession in our message today, which is titled Reflecting on God's Goodness. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for today. Thank you for the opportunity we have to be in your house uh, Lord, for this word, uh, Lord, as you know, I, I studied and studied and studied through this, and uh, there was a long period of time where I just didn't know where I was supposed to go. But Lord, thank you so much that you are so faithful week after week uh, to, Lord, reveal what it is that we need. And I just pray that, God, you'd help me to get out of the way. Uh, you, My humanity is, uh, is the battle. And Lord, if I can just get my flesh out of the way, Lord, please remove the, remove the human element, my stumbling tongue, my wandering mind. And Lord, I pray that you'd uh, use this message to speak to all of us. 
Lord, that we receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Now, as I read this, you're going to go, okay, you're going to understand why this is difficult. Here we go. Verse number seven. And these are the kings of the country which Joshua and the children of Israel smote on this side, Jordan, on the west, from Baal Gad in the valley of, of Lebanon, even under the Mount Halak that goeth up to Seir, which Joshua gave unto the tribes of Israel for a possession according to their divisions. In the mountains and in the valleys and in the plains and in the springs and in the wilderness and in the south country, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The king of Jericho won, the king of Ai, which is, in, which is beside Bethel won, the king of Jerusalem won, the king of Hebron won, the king of Jarmuth won, the king of Lachish won, the king of Eglon won, the king of, Je- of Gezir won, the king of Debir won, the king of Degeter won, the king of Hormah won, the king of Arad won, the king of Libna won, the king of Adullam won, the king of Makedah won, the king of Bethel one, the king of Tapua, one, the king of Hefer, one, the king of Aphak, one, the king of Lasharon, one, you guys get in the pattern, um, the king of Madan, one, the king of Hazar, one, the king of Shimron, Miron, one, the king of Ashaph, one, the king of Tanak, one, the king of Megiddo, one, the king of Kadesh, one, the king of Jachnium of Carmel, one, the king of Dor, in the coast of Dor, one, the king of the nations of Gilgal, one, the king of Terza, one, all the kings, thirty and one. Huh. Okay, so you read that and you go, all right, super, what do we do with that? Okay, um, so as I mentioned last week, what we're going to be doing is we're talking about this is, this is Joshua's story, okay? And as opposed to going through the specific battles that were fought. Now, we did that. We've been in Joshua now for 88 messages. So we have, we have gone through sufficiently explaining all the battles and what was pictured in each one of them. So what we're going to do today is we're going to more focus ourselves on actually the, <clears throat> on actually the faithfulness of God to complete his promise, okay? That's where we're going to put our attention. So So we think about this and we go, okay, so now God's promise was first made to Abraham. Now, that Abraham, that uh, that promise was given to Abraham in 2067 B.C., okay? In Genesis chapter 17, verse 8. It says, I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. Notice this, an everlasting possession. And he says, to thy seed after thee. So it's not just to them. It's not just to his seed after. after it's, this is into, into eternity. And I will be their God. Okay? There's the word possession. This is about ownership. Then the Lord reiterated that same promise 620 years later to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3.8. And I am come down to deliver them out of the land of Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land unto a good land and a large unto a land flowing with milk and honey unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. So he makes that promise again to Moses. Then Moses is going to lead for a period of time and then Moses is going to die. And then what happens is God's going to reiterate the same promise to Joshua 40 years later. Joshua 1.2 Moses my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Then if you go from verses 5, 6, 7, and 9 of Joshua 1, this is all God reassuring him. Reassuring him not only that they can do this, but it's because of their obedience. If they will be obedient to God and to accord obedient to God's word, listen, he says, look, not only will you be successful, but I'll be the one that's going to deliver this thing and deliver your enemies into your hands. It's this promise that God made, a promise to Israel. And do you know what? Not by coincidence. We think about a promise to Israel, and we go, well, okay. But what's interesting about throughout human history, if you were to take people that have been displaced from their countries, people that have been displaced from their homeland, what you'll find is people don't go back and take their homelands. 
people lose their homelands. They just get absorbed into the cultures that are around them. We're a melting pot, right? That's what happens here in America. And what happens is, what we find, what's remarkable about Israel, is Israel was displaced out of their homeland. They were driven out in 90 AD. The city was destroyed. The people were scattered, as the Bible says, scattered all over the world. And for 1,900 years, they remained scattered all over the world. Now that is six, over six times longer than the United States has existed. We're 247 years old. 247 years old. We look at the degradation of our society even now. And what's remarkable about them is after 1900 years, all that time they're absorbed into other cultures, yet somehow miraculously they maintained their culture, they maintain their, their, uh, their faith, their traditions, right? They maintain themselves. They stayed as one, though they were not communicating around the world. They weren't, there was no system that was keeping them united. There was something that carried through time to make sure that they would not let go of those things because there was coming a day, Amen. right? Through World War I, where Jews were persecuted in World War I, and what happened, there were some Jews that were instrumental in helping World War I come to place. And as the United Nations was formed in World War II, and the Jews were horrifically treated, and six million Jews were murdered, and there was a sense of, of dis disgust around the world, and everybody's like, what can we do? What can we do? The Jews were so horribly treated. And there were some Jews that were in place that had worked specifically and helped in regards to, to getting information to the, to the United States government and to the UN. And they said, you know what we want to do? We want our land back. And in 1948, they were reestablished. And guess what happened to the Jews? From all over the planet, they started to come back. And they returned to the very exact location that God said He would give to them. The very same promise. Right? And they sit right now a little teeny tiny country around all the countries around them that want them destroyed. Right. You name it, man. Every country around them has one focus. Destroy Israel. Destroy Israel. You know why? Because the devils always want to come against God's promise. And God says, no, I keep my promise. Now understand, it's a matter of obedience. And can I tell you right now, Israel's not obedient. That's not a place where you go, man, you know, God's... No, they're not. But see, God has a purpose and a plan. And what's going to happen is there's coming a day when the Lord returns to this earth. And you know where He returns? Israel. He comes down in Jerusalem. That very place has got to be in place for the Lord's return. So He says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to instrumentally work through my promise that I made thousands of years ago, and I'm going to make sure that it comes true today. How amazing is that? The promise of God. They sit as a sovereign nation today, and they should have been wiped out a millennia ago. They should be, they should be gone. God keeps, his, God keeps His promise. And so what we're doing this morning is reviewing how He keeps His Word. But you see, the variable is never God. The variable is always the people that God works through. So what we'll find with the Israelites is they're going to go up and down. They're going to have good days and bad days. They're going to have times where they'll follow and times where they'll fall away. They're going to have, and you know, it's guess who, guess what? The Israelites are a picture of you and I. The Israelites are a picture of the individual believer. And guess what? How many of us have struggles? We have good days and bad days. Hello. Join the crowd. Right? We're all in the same boat. So we see ourselves pictured, pictured in them. And we see this obedience, disobedience. 
And understand that this has always been the case, this, this variable, right? God says, listen, your possession of the land is going to be uh, based upon your obedience to me. That was true for Abraham and his descendants. And listen, that's all the way through. But you know what? For us, you and I have a spiritual promised land. We're not Jews, but we have a spiritual promised land, right? The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. And guess what? There is a promised land that we're supposed to possess. It is a place where we walk in fellowship with God, a place of abundance with God. And so the pictures we see in the Old Testament are physical representations, physical real things that took place, and they're also pictures for you and I to apply to our spiritual life and go, oh, I see. As the Bible says, they're in samples. They're examples for us to follow. So I look at these physical pictures and I apply them spiritually to my own heart. So now there's a promised land for us. And guess what? How we possess it or don't possess it is based upon, guess what? Our obedience to God. Some days we're in and sometimes we're struggling, right? It's obedience to God's command. And Paul addresses this idea in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 31. Listen to what he says here, speaking to the church. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. So here's talking about predestination. What is the predestination? The predestination is once the Holy Spirit of God moves inside of your heart, that Holy Spirit is going to shape you. It's going to start to change who you are. It's going to begin to conform you to the image of his Son. Then it says, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30, moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Verse 31, what shall we then say to these things? These are the challenges that life will throw at us. What does he say? If God be for us, who can be against Amen. us? Right? You and I are conquerors. God's always on our side. Can I just tell you that? He's never, ever setting you up. He's never setting a pitfall in front of you. He's never trying to trip you up. He's going to allow things to come into your life to test our faith. Will we trust Him or will we defy Him? Will we put our faith in ourselves or put our faith in, in Him? Will we obediently depend upon God or depend upon ourselves? Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are His workmanship, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath noticed before ordained that we should walk in them. We should. Now, it does not say that we will walk in them. Because guess what? You and I get to make choices. We get to be obedient or disobedient. So it says that we should walk in them. See, God wants us to walk in fellowship with Him. God wants to have that love relationship with us. He wants to deliver us from opposition and bring victory into our lives. Man, this is Joshua's story. This is what we get to see in Joshua. This is what we kind of get to shoot for. But you know, that can be our story as well. We can have a life of victory. When considering this account of Joshua and the Israelites' conquest, there's an interesting thing that is the way it's described to us. Okay, So as I was studying this and reading all of that stuff, I was like, well, what am I, what am I supposed to get? Right? I looked up the meanings of all the names of the cities, right? 31 of them. And I wrote on and I was like, maybe there's a story in here. And I was like, nope, no story. I don't no clue what's going on. Then I was like, well, maybe it's the order how they're listed. Maybe it's the order of the battles, how they were fought. And I was like, I went back and compared this, the biblical record. Nope, it's not that. I'm like, man, that's not it. So then I was like, well, maybe if I get a map and I draw a red line from every place that they go, maybe it'll show me a picture. And I was like, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, that is a mess. I have no idea. So I was like, wow, what are you supposed to see in this thing? What's going on? And then when I realized the fact that there was something, there was a pattern that shifted. The message right before that, we saw Sahon and Og. These are two kings listed by name, okay? 
But you'll notice when we get to verses 7 through 24, there are no names listed. Okay? Now what's going to happen is he's going to categorize them. He's going to list them in different ways. What we see is now with this impersonal uh, way, he'll describe them through their land, he'll describe them through their lineage, and he describes them through their lordship. Take note, first paragraph and a half, it says this, And these are the kings of the country which Joshua, the children of, uh, of Israel, smote on this side, Jordan. Gives us a location from Belgad in the valley of Lebanon, even unto Mount Halak. That gives us parameters. That goeth unto Seir, which Joshua gave unto the tribes of Israel for a possession according to their divisions, in the mountains, in the valleys, in the plains, in the springs, in the wilderness, and in the south country. So God describes them, first of all, by based upon their regions or their, the, where they inhabited. Um, we could call this their sphere of influence or their, or their, or their area of authority. We'll say this, this is their land. Then he describes them using a different metric. Notice this, verses, verse 8. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So here the Lord lists the same defeated kings, but now he describes them by their genetic heritage where it is they come from. What we find is Noah had three sons. One of his sons' name was Ham. Ham had a, made an unfortunate choice, and because of that unfortunate choice that he made, he had a son named Canaan, and Canaan was cursed by God. And guess what? Every one of these individuals are descendants of Cain. So they live with a curse. Okay, their, their lineage. Now let's look at the next thing that identifies them. And I'm not going to read all these, goodness gracious. Jericho 1, da 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 you know, you got me. 1, 1, 1, 1, 1, 1, all the names of those guys, right? So we get to the bottom of that. So we've seen their land. We've seen their lineage. Now, what we see is, this is identifying by, and identifying them by their seats of power or their thrones, okay? This is their, their lordship, okay? So, so none of these kings, none of these kingdoms were pushovers. All of these guys were fortified, they were well-established, and they were wholly committed to defying and standing against God. We know that for a fact, because the Bible tells us that none of them outside of the Gibeonites were willing to make peace with God. But the Gibeonites were the one group that when they heard the stories of what was coming, and they were like, oh, snap, we're in trouble. You know what? Let's make up a story. Let's work this thing out somehow. we got to make peace with God somehow. And what we saw was God, when He received them, Guess what? God showed mercy. And then not only did God reveal His mercy in that situation, but remember, the Gibeonites, once they'd made peace with God, all of their brethren showed up to destroy them. And when God heard word, He sent Joshua and all of Joshua's men, they all risked their lives to go and defend these Gibeonites who had just betrayed them. It's a picture of Gentile salvation, God receiving those who are not His. It's a picture of us. And how beautiful was the fact that not only did God send Joshua to defend him, but then the Bible says that God rained down fire from heaven and destroyed more of the enemy than, 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 than Joshua did. So God literally mercifully protected them from destruction. And so it reveals to us, man, the, the, the faithfulness of God to those who will choose Him. How wonderful. Again, the traits of God, the, the character of God, it's the consistency all the way through Scripture. He is exactly who He is today. And when we think of the battles yet to be conquered, right, in our promised land, our spiritual Walk with God. The battle that rages between our, our carnal nature, right, and our spiritual one. That, that battle between the flesh, the flesh and the spirit. It's important for us to realize that when it comes to our lives, these lives that God's blessed us with, that He wants to use them for His glory. And there are kings. There are wicked rulers in us that need to be defeated. And guess what? These kings... 
They have land, they have lineage, and they have lordship in us. Joshua and the Israelites seized territories that had been wholly sold out to sin, wholly sold out to wickedness, to pagan faith. What was taking place in the land of Canaan would turn our hair, whatever, white, I guess, curl our toes. Because let me tell you, there was sin on a level that many of us maybe can't even perceive. They lived in a, in a place where it was about debauchery. It was about sinful behaviors. It went anywhere from idol worship to, to an immorality, things that we would go, wow, you know what, I, I can't believe that even existed, but all the way to human sacrifice. That's what was taking place in Canaan. So this is what was happening. And so it was literally sin on steroids. And we go, wow, God, can you, can you imagine? But think about it. In our world today, Sin on a level that we could not have dreamed of as young people. I'm 55 years old. I was raised in a completely secular environment. I was raised with no God. I didn't get saved until I was 34. I lived in the world the whole time. So I grew up in the world. I grew up looking at the world. But, man, I never dreamed it would be the way it is today. Just this past week, the Grammys, which I do not watch and I did not watch, but I looked at some pictures from the Grammys. And they had this big, big show, man, all celebrating this, whoever it was, somebody who, somebody who, I don't know what it was, some person or thing. And what happened was, in this celebration, you know what they did? They depicted Satan. The whole show was fire. It was red. It was horns. It was pitchforks. It was sexual acts being acted out on stage to the cheers of the crowd. Woo! This is awesome. The devil no longer puts on a mask He has ripped it off, and he's showing himself clearly. Hey, guess what? I have an agenda, and it is to destroy this nation, to destroy your children, to destroy your culture, to destroy everything I can. And so we go to the book of Romans, and we listen to this this celebration of sin, right? And we think, wow. But this is in the first century Paul writes this. Listen to Romans chapter 1, verse 29 through 32. Being filled with all unrighteousness. Fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, and this is the key, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death. Okay, What I want you to remember is those Canaanites... They had heard the stories of the coming God of Israel. They knew. Rahab told us that they're scared. All of them are scared to death. So they knew there was destruction coming, and yet they chose to defiantly face that and oppose it unto their own destruction. And can I tell you that our world today, the very same thing, right? They know that verse number 32 finishes this. Not only do the same, they're not only involved in that sin, but have pleasure in them that do them. They celebrate the sin. Boy, we can see it lived out right before our eyes. This is the reality. And I tell you, as somebody who personally came out of that world, who somebody lived that, and it's all I knew until I got saved. That's all I ever knew. The problem is they don't see it for what it is. When I lived in that world, I didn't see it as rebellion against God. I didn't see it that way. I was like, well, I don't even know anything about God. Why is it about God? God is not even a part of this. Oh, but see... The devil's been very successful in blinding people's ability to recognize and see 
their own sin. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says this, In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. Less, you know why he wants to blind them? Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. He doesn't want them to see the hope that is in Christ. He doesn't want them to see and understand that there is love for them. And you know what? People are thinking, man, we're just having fun. We're just enjoying ourselves. Man, what's the big deal? God isn't even a part of this thing. We're not anti-God. We're just trying to enjoy ourselves. And see, if we think back, and it's hard sometimes. Maybe some of y'all have been saved for a very long time. But I can think back. I mean, it was, for me, it was 21 years ago. And I can remember who I was. And you know what? If I think back, I can remember thinking the way they thought. Ephesians chapter 2, 2 says this, Wherein in times past, ye, speaking to the church, ye walked according to the course of this world. That's where you came from. According to the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. The reason why it's saying that is because they're living in defiance of God's word. Whether or not they record it or not, they're still accountable. They're living in defiance. So just like Canaan, our land is wicked. But see, not just our country. Also, our hearts our minds, and not only those who don't know the Lord. Sadly, today there are many Christians or people that claim to be Christians. Christian actually biblically means to be Christ-like. Okay, So you can be saved and not be a Christian, but you can't be a Christian and not be saved. So sadly, there are many that unfortunately, the cultural rot that has started to take hold of our world it is guess what it started to spread into the hearts of Christians who are then accepted things that they should not accept become comfortable with things they should not be comfortable with they've allowed the world to begin to influence them and because of the view shifting no longer is the Bible the filter for how we determine what's right and wrong now the culture starts to define it for us and as it does so guess what we get a little bit more lax in what we consider to be inappropriate or what we consider to be, to be sinful. And there are saved people today that claim Christ, that say, oh, I'm here for the, for the glory of God. God, I'm, you know, you know, my life's all about Him, who today are struggling with pornography, adultery, gossip, fornication, envy, hatred, addiction, theft, you name it. There are, you know, this, the whole idea, that there's a thing called better help. Which is, a, which is an online uh, counseling service, right? And you know what, man? It's inundated with people that are looking for some kind of help. There are Christians that are overwhelmed with sin, and they're going, how do I get out? How do I get out? How do I get out? And God has told us what we need to do. The problem is we don't look to the Word of God for our solutions because the world has told us that the solution is outside of God. And when you go outside of God, guess what you're going to find? Corruption. It does not work and why is this the case? Why are there so many people that claim Christ, that struggle with sin? It's because they've allowed the world to influence them instead of them influencing the world. Jesus describes us to be salt and light. You know what salt does? It changes everything it touches. You know what light does? It changes everything it touches. We're supposed to change the world, not be changed by the world. But because people don't know the Word of God, because people aren't, aren't submitted to be obedient to God's Word, they start to let the world decide who they are instead of God's Word. So my question for us is, 
How's our land? How's our land? Is it filled with corruption and hidden sin? Or is it a place that speaks of the power of God? Do people look at our lives and say, wow, God is amazing? Or do they look at our lives and not even see a difference between us and anybody else? Then there's their, their lineage. How about our lineage? Listen, some of the wicked things people struggle with in their Christian lives have deep-seated ties to their past. What I mean is this. There was a situation or a circumstance at some point in your life, maybe when you were younger, a choice that you made. Maybe someone in your life, someone in your family that hurt you. Maybe a time in your life when you trusted somebody and you dropped your guard and you shouldn't have. And you live with the regrets of that choice. And those things, if we allow them to, they begin to define how we see ourselves. Right? They, defend, they, de- they begin to, to develop in us our view of who we really are. And if we're not careful, those things can take us down destructive, destructive paths. You see, the Gibeonites, they had the same lineage as everybody else. They came from the same broken place. But they made a choice. Right? The Bible says they made peace with God. And because of that, guess what? Their lineage changed. And so you and I have to remember the fact that, hey, listen, if you've received Christ, you chose the Lord, you chose to make peace with God. Can I tell you that? We change our lineage. We change our bloodline. Going from godless and hopeless to children of the king of kings. And God's good. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. New as driven snow. All that sin wiped away through the blood and life of Christ. And yet our world is filled with Christians who are Christians by title alone. Their lives don't speak of God's goodness. No, their testimony is one of defeat. It should be victory, but it's not. It's an ongoing defeat. Romans 9, 8, verse 37 through 39 tells us this. Listen to it. Encourage us. Nay, in all these things, all those challenges, we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. For I am persuaded, listen, no matter what comes against us, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's nothing that can do it. Nothing. He's saying, listen, there's nothing that can separate you. You are Christ forever. He is your, your, your Father. We are more than conquerors. And if that's the case, then why do people, so many people live like they're defeated? Listen, that's not supposed to be our story. It's because we've lost sight of whose we are. It's not who we determine. 
It's who He determines. We might come from a place of brokenness. Many of us. But can I tell you that if you've met Jesus, that's no longer your story. Like 26 different times this shows up, but I just picked four or five. Matthew 9, 22. But Jesus turned him about, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be of comfort. He says, Thy faith hath made thee broken? No. Whole. And then when it was made whole from that hour, Matthew 14, 36, and besought him that they would not only touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched were made perfectly whole. Matthew 15, 28, then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith, be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Luke 17, 19, and he saith unto him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. John 5, 15, the man departed and told the Jews, Hey, you know what happened? That it was Jesus which had made him whole. Listen, it's time we embrace who we are in Christ and let go of our past. For you see, God never wastes pain. What we hate about our past, can I tell you this? That if not for our past, if not for our brokenness, we would not have had ears to hear the call of God on our hearts because of our own pride. We would have been blinded. The Bible says that He blinds the minds that the glorious gospel might come unto them, right? It's because of our brokenness that we were willing to hear so instead of hating our past, recognize that God used that adversity to bring us to a place where we can be saved. Our past, our lineage, does not define who we are. Christ does. And it's time we live like it. From Wikihus, because you know what? We all come from the line of the king. Praise God. And then there's our, our lordship, the seat of power. Now, for us, it's a throne that's it's on our hearts and our lives. Joshua systematically removed these wicked rulers, these rulers who had entrenched themselves in this land of Canaan. For you see, he knew that if their influence, that they were not dethroned and destroyed, that their influence would reappear. And can I tell you that the same is true for us when it comes to sinfulness? Those seats of disobedience that we allow to fester and exist in us. Those things that we discount. You know what I mean? It's just part of being human. Nobody's perfect, right? We somehow find a way to discount the wickedness that's in us because other people have wickedness. But that does not eliminate God's call to us which was be ye holy as I am holy. God has an expectation of us to strive against wickedness every single day, endeavoring to dethrone the sinfulness of our hearts. Ephesians 4, 21 through 21, 21 through 27 says this, If so be that ye have heard him, this is Jesus, and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, listen, take it off, it reminds me that there's a song we used to sing when on the bus, and I'm going uh, to, y'all, I'm going to sing, I'm sorry. Just apologize up front. Um, 
We used to write, sing this on the bus with the kids, and we say, Oh, the best thing in my life I ever did do. Oh, the best thing in my life I ever did do. Oh, the best thing in my life I ever did do was take off the old robe and put on the new. The old robe was dirty, all tattered and torn, and the new robe was spotless, had never been worn. And the best thing in my life I ever did do Take off the old robe. Put on the new. Man, it's a visual to help us hold on to. Because you know what? So many of us, we're still dressed in the old robe. It says that you put off concerning the former conversation the old man which is corrupt according to deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither, notice this, give place to the devil. Do not give him a seat of power in your life. Don't set him on the throne. Because he has no right to have an influence over us. For you see, as children of God, our hearts are to be ruled by our Savior, allowing Him to be our guide. Allowing Him to establish, to establish our steps and to guide us on the path of our life. Psalm, uh, Psalm 37, verse 23 through 24 says this, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. How beautiful, right? And then we go, okay, well, how do I hear from God? Is He just going to send me a letter? Uh, you know, is it like on a knee? On a plane flies by with a sign on the back. How does it work? How do I hear from God? Well, I'm glad you asked. Psalm 119, 105 says this. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Thy word. Thy word. And there's so many people that have discounted the value of God's word. Well, I know the stories. I know about Noah and the ark and I know all those things. Listen, that's not what it's about. It's not just the word, it's the words, the specifics. If we'll dig into God's word, man, he will reveal to us exactly what we need. And you notice here how it just describes it. This is absolutely key. It describes it as a lamp and as a light. Okay? Why? Because our world is dark. Right? And there are so many times that God looks at us and we are stumbling through the darkness trying to figure out what's my purpose? What's my path? What direction am I supposed to go, Lord? I just, I just don't know. And yet he tells us. What, what did he say? A lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. See, what the problem is, it's not a matter of knowing what to do. A lot of us actually know what we should do problem is doing it, right? The Bible warns us, be not hearers of the word only, but be doers. Doers. See, doing changes things. Knowing, well, knowledge is actually dangerous to us, because if it's not applied, you know what it does? The Bible says it puffeth up. Makes you prideful. Oh, I know, I know, I know. Okay, great. What does your life say? Because there's two testimonies. There's one of what we say, and there's another one we live. The one that people pay attention to, Ain't this one. It's the one we live. Right? The only Bible most people will read will be the one they see in your life. 
if Jesus is not on the throne of our hearts because the seed is already taken by maybe lust, jealousy, anger, bitterness, worthlessness, selfishness, whatever's on the throne, whatever it is, it needs to be replaced with Christ. And this brings us to one last detail that I want us to see, and I think you're all going to recognize whenever I point it out, okay? When he was listing the names of the cities, it was all followed by a word. One. One, 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 one. When it came to dealing with these, these influences, these, these wicked kings, what we found is Joshua dealt with them one at a time. It wasn't a blanket war to try to deal with all of it at once, which is what we want to do. I'm changing my life tomorrow. That's the day. Tomorrow's the day. I'm drawing along the sand. I'm changing everything. No, that doesn't work, right? What he did was he addressed them individually. And what did we look at? Well, remember when we were back and we were studying those kings that ended up in the cave and they brought them out. What did they do? They exposed those kings, right? Then they identified those kings. Then they put their foot on their neck. They subjugated those kings. And then through the power of God, they destroyed those kings. And that's what Joshua is showing us, that one by one, we address each issue in our hearts and in our lives. We need to identify it. We need to expose it, identify it, and destroy it by surrendering it to the Lord. If we're not specific, you know what will happen? They'll slip into the shadows, and they'll show up again in the future. God wants us to deal with them now. And so let's not buy into the victim mentality of our culture, but live our lives as conquerors, as children of the King. And as people look at our testimony, you know what they see? Us reflecting on the goodness of God. Man, we've been given so much. And we have an opportunity right now. Oh my goodness. As children of the king, we can walk in fellowship with God while we're on this wicked earth and our life can make a difference in the lives of others. We can bring hope to the hopeless, restore the broken, not because we're something special, but because we know someone who is the most special. And as he works through our life, we'll see him do the same for them that he did for us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord for your message today, for the truth that you've revealed. And Lord, I just thank you so much for, um, for what you've done in my own heart, in my own life. God, 21 years ago, I never dreamed. I didn't know who you were, let alone to be entrusted to preach your word. Never would I have been ever what I would have thought. But thank you. I pray for my brothers and sisters right now. Sitting in our seats, Lord, you know what? We all have a desire to do the right thing. Lord, we all want to be children of the King. We all want to be conquerors. But our flesh many times gets in the way. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us. Help us to set our hearts and our affections on things above, not on things on the earth. And Lord, help us as we deal with the carnality, the flesh that we're stuck in. God, help us to deny it. Help us to set our affection on the things above. And Lord, I pray that you'd do a mighty work in us, Lord, that we would uh, claim our identity in you and not allow our past to have any control over us. 
Lord, we have been made new. Lord, help us to live as that new creature, not tied to the old one. And God, I pray for my brothers and sisters. If there's one struggling today, dealing with a sin, a besetting sin that they cannot seem to defeat, oh Lord, would you bring them a place to a place where that, Lord, they would expose it, they would identify it, and most importantly, that they would surrender it to you. God, help them to be a conqueror in this area of their life. And with their heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here today and you say, listen, I don't even know necessarily where I stand with God. I'm not sure who I am in Christ. I've got a history. I know about God. I believe in God. I've been in church my whole life, maybe. But can I tell you this? There are plenty of people that are in church that are going to bust hell wide open. Because it's not about just simply believing God exists. Because I can tell you, the devil believes God exists. It's not about knowing the Bible. Because I can tell you, the demons can quote scripture all day long. It ain't that. It's a submitted heart, a broken heart, calling out to a loving God who's willing to restore them. And if you're here today and you say, listen, I don't have that relationship with God. I maybe have a superficial one, but I don't have that personal one where I know Christ is my Savior. 21 years ago, somebody asked me if I knew for sure if I died today, if I'd go to heaven, and I said, I hope so. Not a good answer. The Bible says we can know. We can know. And if you want to receive Christ as your Savior, you're watching this recorded or listen to it online, Listen, here's your chance. God loves you right where you are in your brokenness. He loves you right where you are. And he's calling out to you. That feeling you have in your heart, that draw to him, all you have to do is respond. He's drawing you. Just surrender and let him have you. With their heads bowed and eyes closed, if you want to receive Christ as your Savior, I'm going to lead you in prayer. It won't be the words of the prayer. There's no ceremony here. There's no prayer. There's no words that are magic. This is nothing more than a broken heart receiving a loving God. And he right now is reaching out to you. So if you want to receive Christ, repeat after me with your heart and mind. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And I am so sorry for how I failed you. I believe that you love me. That you died on the cross for my sins. And that you rose on the third day, proving you were God. Right now in the best way I know how. I'm asking you to come into my heart. I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins. And I'm asking you to save my soul. Lord, by faith, I receive you as my Savior. Thank you for saving me. Lord, I will see you in person in heaven one day. Thank you for who you are. Help me live for you in Jesus' name. Amen. Head still bowed, eyes still closed.